0: Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence, real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart.
1: Welcome to episode three of the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. Phil, what do we have in store today?
2: Today we get to hear from Peter Greer. He's the president of Hope International. He's an adoptive father. He is also the author of many books. Um... Peter is going to share with us today about poverty alleviation, microenterprise, how it all ties together with the orphan crisis. And he also um, is a man who just has a personal connection to this stuff and he's lived it out in different parts of the world. So I'm very excited to, to for, that everyone else is able to hear the interview I was able to do with him because he's taught me a lot over the years. And I know that he's gonna teach uh, everybody else who's, who's listening um, a lot about just the world and how we, everybody, we around the world can work together to alleviate poverty, which will also help to alleviate more and more the orphan crisis. And um, also, I know that Kelly, when you, when you heard this, you were able to share with me a couple stories. Mm-hmm. And after the interview, I, I invite everyone to stick around because I know that you're going to be able to share that with them as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm just excited for, for today, for this, this episode, and that people are able to enter into the conversation with us.
1: Yeah, I can't wait for uh, people to hear. So let's get to the interview. Well, Peter, it's so great to have you with
2: us this morning. Thanks, Phil. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Not only are you one of the most respected leaders in Christendom, but uh, I also have the honor and pleasure of being able to call you a friend and someone who encourages me greatly. So look forward to hearing from you about what you've been learning uh, in your work with Hope International. So as we get started, um, just share a little bit with the listener about your story and how you got to be where you are today.
0: Yeah, well, thanks Phil. Been
2: looking forward to this. So, yeah, my story really uh
0: starts when I was in Moscow, I was studying international business and, uh, had this interest in missions, had this interest in business. And, uh, while I was, uh, in Russia, this, uh, gentleman that I was meeting said, Hey, have you ever heard of this tool called microfinance? And I'd never heard of it. That was really the first time that I had heard anything and it just captivated my, my interest, my attention. And so I've had the great privilege of not really doing a whole lot since that conversation, uh, started my work, uh, with a great organization called world Relief in Cambodia and then went to Rwanda, uh, was running a microfinance institution there called Arwego. Uh went back to graduate school and then did my last project on Hope International when I was uh, in graduate school and uh, have now been in this position uh, for the last 12 years uh, uh, living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So those are some of the highlights. But you kind of look back and, and again, you just see and you know uh, that God has been leading. Um, and so just really, really thankful for where I am and for the friendships that I've been able to develop and cultivate along this
2: great journey. And so Russia, when you were there, what year was that? That would have been 95. Okay. So 21 years ago, 22 years ago, would you have ever thought that you would be president of a microfinance organization that's doing work all over the world? You know it's funny. I, I I am kind of a planner, and so uh, I did look
0: at my life in decades, <laughs> and and uh, you know I, I kind of uh, I, I did hope that at some point in my life, kind of in my fifties, I might work for a Christ-centered microenterprise development organization. That was definitely something that I was I was had a had a very strong interest in, um, and I just had the great privilege of doing it. Um, yeah, when when I turned twenty nine, got to <laughs> join Hope. So a little bit earlier than I was expecting. But again, that's where you kind of see that uh, that, that God leads in his timing right. uh, and in his way. So, yeah, I, I always had hoped I'd be able to do something like this and, and uh, just incredibly thankful for the opportunity to work with this
2: team and do this work that I passionately believe in. And uh, when you when you took over when you're 29 years old, uh, do you think you were ready for all that it entailed? <laughs> you know, the answer to that <laughs> question,
0: you don't even need to ask that one. No. Uh, uh, but I mean, there are some ways where uh, it, it's a gift to know that you don't know. And one of the things that I did early on, and I think this is uh, more important than any formal education that I've ever received. Uh, and, and I've had so thankful some great advisors, some great faculty members. But education is not a one-time experience. And so early on, I recognized how much I didn't know. And so I surrounded myself with a group of mentors in the specific areas where I wanted to learn and grow. So instead of finding one super mentor, uh, I kind of divided it into a constellation model where I said, I want to learn about uh, the very best practices in running an outstanding organization. So I found the best organizational leader I could find and asked uh, Uh, If that individual would mentor and coach me in that area, Mm. I wanted to to grow spiritually. I want to make sure that I'm not stagnating. Uh, So I found the best person I could in that found someone uh, to help me with marriage. I don't want to be successful at work and to be a failure as a husband, as a dad, Um, found someone to help me. I'd never even thought about fundraising uh, before. And and so kind of having the habit of intentionally seeking out great men and women to help coach and mentor me. Uh, that that has been a gift, uh, and and I believe helped me avoid some of the pitfalls that I would have fallen into. I fell into plenty on my own, uh, but but uh, certainly helped me and helped
2: me get up quicker after I made my own blunders as well. That's awesome. Yeah, one of the things people always ask me: like you know, how, how what does it mean to be a leader? How can you do all these different things? It's exactly what you said: to surround yourself with people a lot smarter than you are in all these different areas and uh, learn from them. And that's that sounds exactly what you've done over the years and and it shows um so you have a personal connection with orphan care this is the think orphan podcast so um i definitely want to hear from you and i know the listeners will as well just what is your personal connection with orphan care uh that you've uh, had over the years (sighs) Yeah,
0: so there, there definitely are some professional uh, connections, but it's also a very personal uh, connection as well. Uh, it is uh, a, a key part of uh, who our family is that we want to be about uh, caring and loving all people, and uh, and 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 with a special emphasis on uh, the widow, on the orphan, on individuals in in need or, or distress. And um, so, I guess that started when my wife and I were living in Rwanda. Uh, really, was Laurel. Uh, she would go and she was a teacher there. And as she would walk to school every day, she would be surrounded by a group of street uh, children that she got to know and uh, loved. Um, and and so that was just part of the daily life uh, in Rwanda. And it's easy to be callous towards statistics, it's really hard to be callous towards people. Um, and so, getting to know people, getting to experience what it was like, and getting to realize that a lot of this was not their choice. Uh, it was simply the situation that they were born into. Um, and so we, we said we want to do something. And and so we've been involved in supporting organizations. Uh, but then also uh, we thought at some point, um, especially when we heard about the number of children in institutional care, that when they age out of a system, uh, it the, their future is, is incredibly challenging. And so uh, we said, you know, at some point we want to figure out how we can make an impact. So personally, professionally, part of what I do at Hope with microenterprise development uh, is to help strengthen families. Part of what we do uh, is to actually uh, be creating these groups of children that are starting to save and invest and learn the tools of entrepreneurship together. And on a personal level, we've been involved in foster uh, care uh, and we've been involved in adoption. Uh, We adopted from Rwanda Our our third uh, child and just a a incredible experience uh, for us. So kind of multiple levels, uh, very personal uh, issue, uh, but also the professional work uh, is designed to make an impact there as well.
2: You talked a lot about there about, you know, hope in doing this work around the world. Can you just share a little bit back up maybe a minute here and just share what Uh hope international is and what hope is doing around the world? Sure. So hope exists uh,
0: to to run to implement Christ-centered microenterprise development programs around the world. And we have two models. Uh, we have a formal microfinance institution model that is basically a regulated bank, and then we have a church-based savings and credit association model that is more of a grassroots model. So those are kind of the technical terms. Uh, but maybe maybe the uh, a more uh, simplistic way uh, to say is that we believe around the world that even uh, though someone might be born into a situation of poverty, that does not mean that they are not uh, given incredible gifts and abilities. And so we want to transition beyond a charity model and start investing with them, invest in their dreams as they invest in their families and their communities. And so a lot of people around the world want to work, uh, but there are a few formal jobs. And so oftentimes they're required to start something on their own, to be an entrepreneur by not by choice all the time, out of necessity. And so, again, we go in with coaching, with mentoring, with discipleship, uh, with savings. Many times it's the first time that they've had a place to save money or with access to small loans uh, so that they have the capital that they need to invest. So perhaps you've heard the Chinese proverb, you know, age old to give a man a fish, he eats for a lifetime. <laughs> we want to give men and women uh, the capital training that they need so that they can start their own fishing businesses, mm-hmm. thriving uh, fishing businesses
2: uh, so that they can provide for their families and transform their communities. And I know I've seen uh, over the last probably year or two, the uh, uncharity initiative that HOPE uh, has going. Is that really what you just described, what that's all about? Yeah. I mean, that, that's kind of a made up word yeah, uh, right, of that, that,
0: that says that, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of times we go in and, and we just believe there's a better long term way to help than the traditional model. Charity is good and effective in a short-term immediate response. It becomes harmful and destructive when indiscriminately applied over the long term. And so our model is to kind of turn it on its head and to say the predominant model should not be handouts. The predominant model should be partnering with men and women as they uh, are able to create, invest, and have jobs so that they're buying their own food and not needing us to, to ship it in so that they're able to build their own homes and not wait for a team to come in and build it for them. So again, that, that's kind of what the word insinuates is right. trying to change the predominant model instead of what we can do for others to watch what they want and have the capacity to do on their own.
2: Mm. And that really, in a nutshell, I mean, it obviously is done through different vehicles, micro being one of them, but that really is the, the at the core and the heart of the poverty alleviation uh, that you're working on with hope, right? And, and so... Uh, I'd love to just hear from you just in a kind of nutshell. What what are poverty alleviation and micro enterprise just for the listener who may not really know what those terms mean? It's been interesting because I feel like there's been a
0: broader conversation. And in some ways, the broader conversation ultimately comes down to. To to what we all intuitively know, right? The broader conversation being we know we are compelled to care for others. We we know we're compelled to help. And there's something in us, the way that we're wired, when we see incredible need and suffering, we know we're not supposed to just keep on walking by as if we didn't see or experience that. But the question is, so what do we do? What do we do that really makes an impact? What do we do that really makes a difference? And that's where the most obvious solution sometimes is missed. That in places of poverty, one of the most important ways to help is to help them have a job, <laughs> um, and you know John Perkins says this. He says the world's best anti-poverty program is a pro- is a job. It's not a program at all. It's a job. Bono uh, has similarly. You know he was kind of the poster person for the aid movement, and yet at his Georgetown University speech, he said, you know, we know that uh, enterprise takes more people out of poverty than aid ever well, that aid is just a stopgap, cap. Um, and so that's really what we want to be a part of. Not saying that aid is not necessary, not saying charity is not good and appropriate, but those things should always be temporary in nature. And the goal should always be to help people to be independent of the need for long term charity because they're able to have the dignity of providing for themselves. And so when we say poverty alleviation, what we do uh, is just a part of a broader uh, conversation, but we want to help equip men and women to have employment, uh, to have savings, to have employment, to have access to capital, uh, and to grow thriving enterprises that end up uh, taking themselves, their families, and their community out of poverty.
2: Mm. So with that said, um, I was listening to to a book, uh, actually it's this morning, I, I heard this quote it was uh, in the book "Playing God" by Andy Crouch, and I don't know if you've read that book, but in in there he talks about this this man Jayakumar, who was a leader in India for World Vision, and this man in India was talking to to Andy, and he says, he said, "Poverty is the absence of linkages, the absence of access to others." Would you agree with that? Yeah. So. I would not
0: want to disagree with Andy Crouch on anything uh, just as a starting point. So if that's if that's in the book, I mean, it's it's uh, it's great. Andy is a thoughtful, thoughtful person. I've, I've uh, really appreciated uh, Yeah, reading his work, listening to him speak and, and getting to know him. Uh, definitely a thought leader uh, in the world today. Um, but, you know, I, I might I might push back a little bit in that I find that uh, anytime we look for simple solutions to the issue of poverty, we are going to be uh, missing some pretty significant elements. And so there have been some people, Phil, that have said, uh, you know, lack of linkages. That's that's the cause of poverty. There have been other people that said, you know, lack of rule of law. That's the root cause of poverty. There are other people that said lack of clean water or medical because Mm -hmm. if people are sick, then they can't get jobs. Some people have said it is, uh, you know, lack of access to capital so that people don't have jobs and communities stay in poverty. Anytime you make a statement that begins with poverty is, and then has a simple answer immediately after it, I think you're going to be uh, you're going to be turning a very complex issue into an overly simplistic issue. And and so I, I would agree with that statement that linkages are essential uh, in the pathway out of poverty. But I would also say, and so is rule of law, and so is basic education, and so is health, and so is microenterprise. There are multiple components that are all necessary. And Phil, this is one of my passions, as you know. I I, I love what we do at Hope. I really do. I I love our model. I love our mission. And I uh, would never, ever claim that we are the solution to global poverty. Mm -hmm. I am more excited about the bigger picture of what's happening in this, perhaps uh, starting with a humble recognition that every single one of our organizations does not have uh, the solution Uh, it is absolutely necessary to have multiple interventions across multiple disciplines that uh, yes food security yes health yes rule of law yes uh, property rights you know all of these components are are an important piece but uh, this is a complex issue and it's not going to be solved by only one approach
2: Well, that's great. And for the record, the book Playing God goes into a whole lot more than that out of context quote, but I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. And it's, it's really very consistent with what Andy talks about in that book. Um, but uh, that was actually a quote from someone else, not Andy, that he was quoting. So you know your your answer is safe, uh, Peter. so uh, no, that was that was fantastic stuff. Um, and I definitely um, know that you are a man who is a collaborator and you know the synergies of collaboration as much as anybody, and you know how absolutely necessary it is for that uh, for uh, these these very, very difficult uh, things in our world to be solved is not some magic bullet answer. Um so on that note um why are we talking about this on think orphan what what is poverty alleviation microenterprise the work of hope what's that got to do with orphan care around the world Oh well, there's a great book uh, called Pursuing
0: Orphan Excellence uh, that I highly recommend uh you might know a little bit about Phil but uh uh you, you know it, it's 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 a component of it it's absolutely a component and and I think many of us uh, were struck by the It's not a new realization here, but um, but by the number of children around the world that are classified as orphans that have a living uh, relative and, uh, you know. Better Care Network, uh, they, they did research in a number of different places and in institutional care, they found crazy numbers between 70 and 90% of the children that were in orphanages actually had a living uh, direct relative. And and so uh, when they kind of did more investigation, they found that a lot of the children were more economic orphans, that moms and dads were making the impossible decision about whether they keep them in their home and have the daily reminder that they're not able to provide food and food clothing and and appropriate shelter for their kids or whether they turn them over and put them in an orphanage. And so our goal uh, is to say if we want to see a massive reduction in the number of orphans and vulnerable children, we've got to have a family strengthening approach that, yes, looks at children, but it looks at children with a default position that says if moms and dads had the capacity, would they be the primary caregivers uh, for their children instead of, again, that excruciating decision to uh, turn them over uh, to the care of another. Um, and and so uh, we believe that there are a lot of individuals around the world that that feel like they have no choice, feel like they have no resources to care for their families. And I think that's where this issue of these saving circles and microenterprise development uh, is playing a significant uh, kind of role in prevention and in care. Uh, you know, I think about John Marie, an entrepreneur in, uh, in Rwanda as well. And so he started a restaurant, has a farm, kind of a farm to table model in a pretty cool way. But Jamboree, as his business has grown, uh, he knows that he is blessed to be a blessing in his community. And part of that is that he has been able, uh, in addition to his five biological children, he's been able to now adopt six other children. And that's the sort of thing that we see, that as individuals have some economic empowerment, as they uh, are able to have more resources, they are absolutely making an impact in their communities as they care for the vulnerable around them and as they are able to to uh, bring in uh individuals into their home so that's that's uh, that's part of the connection
2: yeah and you referred to in pursuit of orphan excellence which you shared three great stories in that book about um mothers of, of children who were struggling and with small loans, they were able to start businesses and start other projects that they were able to not only have enough money to be able to raise their own children, but they were able to bring other children from the local community into their home to provide families for them. It was such a beautiful picture of how all of this works together. Um, and so that was something that I, I definitely appreciated learning from you and to see that see that connection, the interconnectedness of all this stuff. Um, so assuming that uh, what you're talking about is true, which I know it is, and you know it is, um, how can Orphan Care Ministries uh, engage this absolutely necessary uh, work of poverty alleviation, of family strengthening, microfinance, if that's part of what, what it is, how can they get involved with it um, if they have no experience in the, in the work?
0: Yeah, you know, I think it starts really with, with a recognition that uh, economic development needs to be part of the long-term solution. It doesn't mean that every organization has to therefore go and expand into this space, but it does mean that uh, that there should be a component. You know, we, we have a strong belief uh, here at Hope International that everything that we do should be open source, and so it's been great fun for us with some organizations to share the things that we're learning. Uh, we, we have a couple uh, large-scale partnerships with other organizations that have been doing uh, focusing on children, wanted to incorporate and an aspect of economic development. And so we've been able to go in and work with the parents, uh, and, and kind of, uh, attack the problem, uh, from it, from another direction. And for some people, it might be just creative linkages. You know, there, there probably are other people doing this, uh, in the area, um, not far away. And, and so kind of to celebrate that, I, I, I just think this is a space of incredible creativity right now, maybe more than I've ever seen where people are saying, Let's figure out, let's understand the dignity of work. Let's understand the impact of a job. And then early on, let's figure out how we start training, equipping individuals to be job creators in their their society, in their culture. And uh, that that deals with children. That also deals with the parents. Um, So a variety of tools. But again, I I think it first starts with a belief that this is an important component and then uh, starts doing research and who are the organizations out there. Uh, locally and internationally that might be able to help assist or support uh, this important aspect of, of caring for children.
2: And on the show notes, we'll be able to have those links for people to be able to access some of those resources that you're, that you're alluding to. And I, I know that we'll be able to get those from you and we'll put them up on our, on our uh, thinkorphan.com website uh, with the show notes on this episode And with with that, what what how can people get in get involved with Hope International? Where where can they find out information about Hope International? Uh, you could go to hopeinternational.org. That is a nice question, Phil. Thanks for that.
0: Uh, but yeah, hopeinternational.org uh, is, is uh, our, our website. And then uh, if anyone wanted to connect with me on uh, Twitter or Facebook or whatever, uh, Peter K. Greer. Um, so happy to connect either of those ways if there's anything that we as an organization could try to do to support the great work that's happening around the
2: world. Well, this has been fantastic today. I know that you need to, to jump off uh, this interview to actually go to another interview with a potential HOPE uh, team member. But Before you go, um, I've actually got another question for you relating to the hiring process, process that I think will really help our listeners in their own leadership. I know I'm putting you on the spot with this one, but I, I'm pretty sure that you'll be able to handle <laughs> it. Um, when you're interviewing someone, you know, what are you looking for? What are the qualities that are non-negotiable for you and anyone that you hire at HOPE?
0: Yeah. So we're we're big on uh, simplicity with everything that we do. Uh, And so for me, it's super simple. I'm just looking uh, at three aspects, attitude, aptitude, and work ethic and attitude. A big issue uh, for us uh, is their full passion for the mission of what it is that we do. Uh, Are are they someone that's going to be not sunk when they hit the challenges that inevitably will come? Uh, We want to make sure that uh, for us as an organization, faith is at the very core of who they are and what they're about. Aptitude is a second component of it. We want to hire high capacity people. We have a bias towards internal promotion. And so every hire we're thinking, could this person grow within the organization uh, to greater responsibility in the years to come? And then work ethic for me, are they willing to do the work, uh, roll up their sleeves, dive in? We have a lot to be done, and so we're looking for people that are going to really be uh, be fantastic uh, team players willing to go the extra mile. Uh, so for us, uh, that's that's what I personally am looking for, right attitude, uh, right aptitude, and the right sense of work, work ethic.
2: Well, thanks so much. I'll let you get going, but uh, don't worry, uh, listeners. We're going to get some more from Peter Greer on – on uh, the, the subject matter of a lot of his books that he's written, and he's written several of them in the last few years, I highly recommend all of them, even though I haven't read, I think, one or two of them. <laughs> I am sure, based on what I have read, um, they're going to be fantastic. But uh, his latest work, I believe it's the latest one he's published, is 4040 Vision, which has some uh, great stuff in it that I just finished that book a couple weeks ago, and, and I strongly recommend it. But we're going to be able to talk with Peter in a... a in another interview coming up about a lot of those concepts. So thanks again, Peter.
0: Phil, great to have time with you. Thanks so much. Have a great day.
2: Well, that was just a rich time that I was able to spend with Peter. I hope that uh, you all learned as much from him as as I have and as I did in that interview. Uh, Kelly, you know, when we were able to talk about this interview, Uh, you shared a couple stories with me and I would love for you to just share with everyone what you learned from Peter and what uh, stories that kind of triggered in your mind from your personal experiences with your family Mm -hmm. and um, with the work that you've been doing with orphans.
1: Yeah, when I listened to this, it really struck a chord with me because of our adoption of our son Judson. And um, Judson, the reason he became an orphan is the direct result of poverty. And just the fact that his uh, Africa mom was not able to care for him any longer and needed to go back to school and, and wanted to get an education so she could provide for herself. And so um, a few weeks back, I was putting Judson to bed and he um, usually at bedtime, he's six now, will start asking us something. Sometimes things come out at bedtime, as I think it does with most kids. And he just simply said, um, why did you not pay my Africa mom money to take care of me? And just in that very innocent six-year-old uh, voice and understanding and having to kind of step back and answer that for him in a way that um, was difficult because in our initial um In the initial process, when we saw that the reason he was an orphan was because of poverty, that was our gut instinct was how can we provide for her so she can therefore provide for her, her son. And the system was not set up for that to happen. And so... Therefore, our son went into an orphanage Mm -hmm. and ultimately uh, came to our home. And so this one really hits home with me because there are, are so many families and moms around the world who want to care for their families. They literally just don't have a means to do that. And so... You know, one way that I know we can all help is from where we purchase things. And so there are so many great organizations that, you know, we'll try to highlight in the coming episodes that that are doing this work of, of employing women um, to to learn a craft and then they're selling that straight to, to, uh, to consumers. And then therefore these women are able to keep their families together. And so that just really, um, just that direct correlation between, um, poverty and the orphan crisis is one that has very much touched our own home. Um, so that was definitely something that stood out to me.
2: Yeah. And that personal side of it, that, 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 um, shows how multifaceted, all of this work is. It's not just some easy answer. It's not just some thing that, oh yeah, well, of course we want to do international adoption because these kids need families. Well, a lot of these kids you know, do have families. And it's just so difficult because as you said, the system wasn't set up for that. And that is so true in so many countries. And so that's why I think there are so many levels of this, that we need to go at the governmental level. We need to go at the cultural norm level. We need to go at the personal level. Um, And it's starts at the personal, but it doesn't end there. You know, you have to, we have to continually be breaking down these norms, these paradigms, these generational mindsets, as um, some people have uh, talked about. So... Yeah, no. Thanks for sharing that, and I know that we're gonna be hearing more and more about how these issues have have impacted you personally and me personally, and um, yeah, I look forward to, to hearing more about how you've wrestled with these these things just in your in your own home, and then hopefully you as listeners, I know you have experienced these things um, in your lives, and we we invite you, as we said last episode, we urge you to enter this conversation with us and share with us your story, share with us through the comments, share with us any questions you might have for Kelly or myself, um, so we can continue dialoguing about these issues. Um, that's our hope for this podcast. And, and, you know, um, we look forward to, to, uh, continuing to dialogue with you over the internet, over um, your emails, also in person, if you ever see us, to just talk through us with with these issues. That that would be our our hope and dream for for what we're doing here. So, uh, Kelly, you know what what do we have coming up next episode on that on that note, as far as continuing the conversation?
1: Yeah, our next episode. I feel got a chance to interview Todd Guckenberg,er and it's going to be a great um, conversation just about the whole child and how um, his organization is. Um, able to work with kids and address multiple areas of their life. So we'll see you next time.
0: We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.